so welcome again. Set, yeah. It struck me all of the announcements and details, many, many details for how we will be uh, living together, sharing the space over these next days. All of that is done so that we can create, there it is, so that we can create this container where you get to relax, you get to be yourself, you get to let go of many of you described in your check-ins, you know, the kind of plugged-inness that we feel in our lives. And it's not because there's something wrong with our lives, but because creating a space, a container like this, allows us to have access to parts of ourselves that are sometimes overlooked. We're so busy getting somewhere that we forget that it's really okay sometimes to just be here. And so as part of the creation of this container that we'll be sharing, I want to say again, a really full and wholehearted welcome to everyone. And to say as well that really everyone, everyone here is welcome. Whatever (coughs) age you are, whatever size you are, whatever your degree of able-bodiedness or disabled-bodiedness you have, whatever color you are, whatever culture you come from, whatever sexual or gender or political identity you bring to this container that we share, all of that is welcome. We could use a little more of that in our world. And it's sometimes not emphasized so much that these beautiful teachings that come from the Buddha 2,600 years ago sit in a context in which the Buddha himself was (laughs) a bit of a social revolutionary, that he invited everyone to participate fully (coughs) in the Sangha, in the community that he created. He invited kings and merchants and soldiers and warriors and (laughs) women. This was a radical thing to do. And so it's in that spirit that I hope that you will feel yourself welcome because our felt sense of not belonging, of not fitting in, of not being a part of, of feeling separate is such a deep layer of suffering that uh, we feel. The Buddha called it sankaradukkha, that felt sense of separation, that we can feel from each other. And certainly we see a level of uh, divisiveness in our world today that is uh, frightening, actually, and painful. And it's that divisiveness toward others that we also can feel toward various parts of ourselves. And so in the same spirit, all of you is welcome. All of those parts that you may not have had time to address, that you may have felt too busy to attend to, 
that you maybe didn't really want to touch. All of that is welcome here. And no one knows what will arise for you or for me or for any of us over these next days. Some of it may be beautiful, blissful, peaceful. Some of it may be quite difficult. And just to say right up front that whatever it is that's arising, (laughs) that we don't need to judge and assess. It's all welcome. And what we're learning to do as we're here is to be with, to find our seat, to find our balance, to find a way to navigate the life of sometimes called the 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. This ridiculous, amazing thing (laughs) called being human. So we have an opportunity here to fully allow each of us and all of us to become ourselves. There's also in this container an opportunity, it was reflected, I heard anyway, in many of your check-ins, this opportunity to kind of slow down, right? To pause to take a step back. I sometimes think of this as um, a way of talking about it, that in much of our life, we are moving in a kind of horizontal plane. We're moving across the surfaces of life. And we're doing that with an aim to get from here to there. We're trying to get something or get away from something. There's a premium placed on speed and efficiency, accomplishment. You, you understand. <laughs> it's so much the water we swim in in our regular life. And there's nothing wrong with getting stuff done in our lives. I like getting stuff done. I'll tell you a little secret, which is that sometimes you know how you make a to-do list. Sometimes after I do something, if it's not on my list, I write it down just so I can cross it off. So satisfying, right? But the thing is, if we only are moving in the horizontal plane, we just get busier and busier because there's no end, right? You get to the bottom of that list and guess what? The next day comes, the next week comes, the next thing comes. So we just get tired. And there's often a felt sense of a kind of dissatisfaction, like we're just churning along. And so fortunately for us, there's this other dimension we think of as the vertical dimension of our lives. This capacity to drop from moving across the surface down into the depths. It's like think about a body of water. You're moving across the ocean and then you drop down into the depths of the water. There's a, in the uh, Greek, there are two terms that are used to describe time, which are chronos and kairos. And they kind of go with these two different dimensions. Chronos is like chronological. So I think of chronological time, chronos time, as tick-tock time. It's the time that we're constantly checking our watches and our iPhones and our... And one of the beauties of retreat is you don't have to do that because there's somebody ringing a bell and so on. You just follow the schedule. As Andrea said earlier today, you let the schedule hold you. You don't have to figure it out. Just follow the schedule. (laughs) You'll see how hard that is, actually. It's not as easy as it sounds. The schedule is simple. We are complicated. Therefore, you may run into some difficulty. So Kronos is that kind of moving across the surfaces, tick-tock time. Kairos, which is with a K, Kairos is what I think of as deep time. 
it's this kind of vertical dimension. It's a dropping into now. This is the place that we have an opportunity to explore in the context of this container of a retreat that we are creating together, collectively creating this space, this container together. And that Kairos time, that dropping into a moment, is the kind of time in which we discover beauty and meaning and a sense of contentment that isn't really possible if we're only moving across the surface. There's a beautiful uh, piece from a great Zen teacher, Dogen Zenji, who's the founder of Soto Zen, 13th century Japanese poet, monk, philosopher. And he says, if you sail out in a boat to the middle of the ocean where no land is in sight and view the four directions, So imagine you sail out in the boat and there's no, you're in the middle of the water and you look around. So there you are. You sail out in the boat to the middle of the ocean where no land is in sight and view the four directions. The ocean looks circular and does not look any other way. So we have at this horizontal level in the middle of the ocean what looks like a circle. But, he says, the ocean is neither round nor square. Its features are infinite in variety. It is like a palace. It is like a jewel. Whole worlds are there. As we drop under the surface of the water, anyone who's ever been snorkeling will know this experience a little bit viscerally. And maybe you've seen a show on TV that you you can look under the surface of the water. It's like a palace. It's like a jewel. Whole worlds are there. As you give yourself the opportunity to drop in and drop down, drop under in this way, you will have an opportunity to discover aspects of yourself, of your capacities, of the nature of consciousness and reality itself will allow themselves to be revealed. They're already there. You don't have to make any of this happen. Your job is just to give yourself to the space, to the practice, to yourself in a way that allows this naturally, spontaneously to open. And I will say that, you know, Dogen's version of it sounds kind of beautiful and wonderful, but (laughs) maybe this won't be true for you, but at least for me, this was not an easy process. Because for some reason, getting there is difficult. We meet resistance and doubt and self-judgment. Basically, on the way to seeing things in a new way, we see all of the habitual ways that we freeze ourselves, that we habituate, that we're reactive, that we're... So we have to see all of that on the path as we go. So I'm just saying that because I don't want to make it sound sort of Pollyanna, like you sit down and then you drop in and then this beautiful jewel palace reveals itself. Yes, but that's not all of it. So please don't worry if you have a bit of a rough ride. That doesn't mean you're not on track. So part of the reason that uh, we do these two next steps that Andrea and I will be discussing are in support of creating that container, in support of recognizing the not easiness of the practice. And the first, which I'll talk about just a little bit, is uh, taking refuge. And the second, which Andrea will describe a bit, is the practice of um, taking on the precepts, ethical guidelines for sharing this space together. So taking refuge is one of the most ancient 
Buddhist practices. It's practiced in all Buddhist traditions. And I think of taking refuge as being a way in which we are intentionally aligning ourselves with what's worth taking refuge in or what's worth relying on. This is important because most of the time (laughs) we are, as they say, looking for love in all the wrong places. We're looking to get something that we think will make us happy, that we think is reliable, that we can take refuge in, and it's not. So, interestingly, the word refuge in the Latin means refuge. That's the uh, root of it, which means to fly back. And there's a way in which as we take refuge, we are reorienting ourselves because our general sort of worldly orientation is not to fly back. (laughs) It's to get there or get away from something or getting and getting away from all the time. So this idea of fly back is a reorientation to help you understand that you're not trying to become somebody else. Actually, you're not even trying to become an improved version of yourself. (laughs) You're just trying to allow the jewel that is already you to be revealed. So what do we take refuge in? The the triple treasure. I have to tell this funny story because I bet you will remember it at some point during the retreat. When I was first practicing in the Zen tradition, we would do a a meal chant for every meal. And part of the chant said, you know, we take refuge in the triple treasure. And one day the, the teacher, the abbot of the monastery, gave a talk about the triple treasure. And uh, he described that the triple treasure is taking refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. <laughs> and the woman who was sitting next to me, we were both new students, leaned over me and, to me and she said, I thought the triple treasure was breakfast, lunch, and dinner. <laughs> <laughs> and you may feel this at some point on the retreat because the meals are the biggest entertainment right, value. Right? But uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner are fine to take refuge in. But what was pointed to in the original teaching was first to take refuge in Buddha, not just the historical person who woke up, but the understanding that, first of all, the Buddha was not a god. The Buddha was not a superhero or superhuman. The The Buddha was a person like me and you. So when we take refuge in Buddha, we're taking refuge in that potential that sits in each of us. It's not somewhere else. (laughs) I heard a lot of people say in the check-in something about, you know, wanting to calm down or, you know, de-stress. And calming down and de-stressing is great, but let's not sell ourselves short. That's not ultimately what the practice is about. Do you want to be calm or do you want to be free? Taking refuge in the Buddha is pointing you toward what's really possible for each of you, for all of us. We take refuge in Dharma, which is the teachings of the Buddha, but in a way more radically, we take refuge in the truth. The word Dharma means truth. This is so radical. Really, can we take refuge in now and now and now again and again? This moment and the next one, even if it sucks, terrible moment, wait for the next one. To keep showing up moment by moment for our life. This is what's offered. The opportunity here is offered to really check it out. And we take refuge in Sangha, which means community. And for our purposes, we are that. We take refuge in each other in this beautiful way that we are so fully supporting one another in our practice, but not in the usual way. Not by talking, not by sharing, but by knowing that the person to your left and your right, the person in front of you and behind you, is fully giving themselves in the same way that you are. 
and there's a way in which the container, the field that we create together in that way allows all of us to drop deeper, allows all of us to feel a kind of support and connection. So this is taking refuge in Sangha. So I hope that um, those refuges will uh, support you as you go and that you will feel yourself more and more welcomed uh, as we move through these days of retreat. So this um, kind of entering into retreat, the taking of the refuges and the precepts, is it's almost like a, a little ritual that we do to agree with each other. This is what we're doing. This is what, how we're spending our time and we are committing ourselves in a way to a different way of being a different way of showing up for ourselves, as Pam was talking about, showing up for all of ourselves, for the fullness of who we are. No part left out. And that means all of the parts that we appreciate, that we like, that we feel good about, and all the parts that are struggle for us. This, the parts that are a struggle for us, in fact, are, are really a piece of, in the Buddha's own journey, his own journey towards the question of, is it possible to be free? The question for him was around this struggle, this stress, this suffering, that he looked around and he saw all of humanity engaging in things that kind of kept them struggling and suffering. And, he, and his question was, is it possible? Is it possible to be free from suffering? What might that mean? What might that look like? And in his, his own journey, he did discover that possibility. And this is part of the taking refuge in the Buddha that because he was a human being, because he found this possibility, and he pointed to us, he said, he said to us, he said, it is possible to free your mind. If it weren't possible, I wouldn't ask you to do this. It's possible to be free of suffering. And one of the key containers or key things that he points us to on this path because he offered, he, f- he, he discovered, he found a path that will support us all in moving in the direction of freedom. And a, a, a good portion of that path is looking at how we are in relationship with our fellow human beings and recognizing that if we want to be free from suffering, if we want to have that ease and peace in our hearts, that we would find it useful to engage in relationship in a way that doesn't add harm to the world, that doesn't add suffering to the world. And so this is a piece of our, of our practice together, is not only engaging in our own inner work, but also kind of committing to each other that we will create a container of non-harming that we will agree to together. This container of non-harming in our tradition is um, holding uh, these five guidelines, ethical guidelines, guidelines for our conduct with each other and with the world. 
and they are the, the precept or the guideline to refrain from taking life, the guideline, the precept to refrain from taking what is not given, the precept to refrain from engaging um, in harmful uh, sexual activities, and this retreat will take it to refraining from sexual, um, intentional sexual activity altogether for this, for this retreat. And then refraining from false speech and refraining from intoxicants. And so, you know, these, these, these precepts, they, they sound a lot like um, commandments for some of us from the Judeo-Christian tradition, the, the thou shalt not, they have that flavor to some extent. And yet my understanding of how they're held here, there I didn't understand really how they were held in, in my uh, Christian tradition as I was growing up. Or there's a different, a different model here. I'm not sure quite which because in in my in my tradition it, it 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 in my christian tradition it felt like i was told to just like just do this you don't investigate or explore or even you know question why you would do this or not do this and what the um the encouragement here always is to look at what supports us in moving in the direction of freedom from suffering and the Buddha points out to us that if you want to move in that direction, that engaging in killing, in taking things that are not offered, in a false speech, that those things will not serve you. Not only do they, do they create harm in the world, but they create an inner tension in our own hearts. They create a kind of a, a disconnect. And I think we know this, you know, if we, if we find ourselves having, you know, even sometimes just told a, a you know, a, a white lie or something, you know, sometimes the mind can get really agitated around that. And this is, this is a form of suffering. And so not only do these actions, if we engage in them in the world, these actions would directly, um, the first four in particular, would harm other beings if we were to engage in them. They also harm us. And so this is part of our agreeing to, um, to hold these precepts, is to recognize how... Um, if we want to move in the direction of ease and peace in our own lives, we need to commit to ease and peace in the world as best we can. And also to acknowledge that we will probably make mistakes in refraining from taking life here on retreat. I'm not, I'm not concerned that any of you are going to be taking human life And yet there may be times when mistakenly or out of, um, you know, just habit perhaps, we swat a mosquito. And you know, we are exploring the possibility of refraining from um, any action to, to kill living beings. And yet if that happens, I kind of think of these these precepts is, is almost like wake-up bells. You know, if we find ourselves either getting ready to engage in something, getting ready to swat a mosquito or, or um, kill a spider or something, that it, it serves as a wake-up bell for us. Wait a minute, what is my precept here? What is my, what is my commitment? And for this time on this retreat, can I enter into a commitment to refrain from... Um, killing li living beings, refrain from any intentional killing of living beings. Now this may, may, may not, this, 
when we walk out on the land, you may you may just in the walking step on a creature. That is not an in, that is not an intentional action of killing, and so that is not a breaking of the precept. That is not a a a um, an action that is something that we would even have control over necessarily. Now we may, if we find out later that we have killed something, we may feel a kind of a quivering in our heart of compassion over having injured or killed a being. But we don't have to feel like there was something else we could have done in that case. So this really is about looking at those intentional actions where we are, we are engaged in the movement towards breaking one of these precepts and, and exploring the possibility of not going that, w- going that way. So each of these precepts is said to be paired it, we are refraining from some action. And yet it's not simply about refraining from an action because we have to, um, you know, just action itself, just physical action, doesn't necessarily lead us to freedom. The Buddha talked about um, a... Um, You know, a, a a a chicken sitting on its eggs, and and said, you know, if this chicken, you know, if if just the act of sitting is, this may not be the Buddha actually. This may be I may be conflating two stories. <laughs> so scratch the Buddha said this, but um, if if it is just the act of sitting that leads to freedom, chickens would be free. It takes some intentionality to engage, to connect, and so the um, you know the the intention towards refraining from killing, not just to refrain from it for the sake of refraining from it, but for the sake of our own hearts and for for the well-being of others. If we engage in it for the purpose of cultivating freedom and cultivating compassion in our hearts. It said that each of these precepts is paired with a beautiful quality that is cultivated if we open our hearts to it. And so if you find yourself about ready to kill a mosquito and remember, maybe you can call up a sense of this is a life and maybe brush the mosquito away and, and connect with a possibility of feeling compassion for that life. This action, the action of refraining from killing, can have a rebound on our hearts of the beautiful quality of compassion. Likewise, with all of the, uh, the precepts, there's a, a paired beautiful quality associated with it. Refraining from taking what's not given is paired with contentment. We respect the property of others. Refraining from sexual activity. Just a little bit about that one too. That's actually a, in refraining from sexual activity here, we're doing more than the non-harming piece. Um, the, the precept around non-harming is refraining from creating harm through sexual energy. And we go further on the retreat, partly because sexual energy is such a potent force in our, in our lives. And we explore, what we are exploring here is directing all of our energy towards waking up, towards the practice, towards exploring and opening to all of who we are. Now this doesn't mean repressing sexual energy, but it means perhaps not allowing, one way I like to think about this, is not allowing it to leak out. 
And so if there is somebody that you're feeling drawn to, then, um, you know, there can be, it's amazing in the silence actually how we can create, we have found our perfect partner in the silence, through seeing somebody walking mindfully across the room, it's, oh, that person is my soulmate. This has happened to me more than once. And incredible, incredible stories come up about this in the mind. You know, I've been through entire Vipassana romances, we call them Vipassana romances, the VR, and I've gone from the point of seeing somebody and we've gone through the whole dating process and then we've gone through the whole like getting ready to get married in my mind, all of this in my mind. And then at some point, some part of my mind, you know, it's like I, I, I imagined meeting that person's brother and then, oh, I was actually more drawn to the person's brother and then I had to break up with the person. It was it's quite amazing what the mind can do in this. This sexual energy can kind of proliferate in this way. And, and this may happen to you. And I used it as practice. And yet what I tried to not do was to in any way telegraph that there was something, some kind of attraction I was feeling. And so it's like, maybe you having this feeling in your in your in your being some kind of attraction but what i'd suggest is that you not sit next to that person at meals that you not put your shoes next to their shoes that you not steal glances at them and so uh, see if if you can allow the feeling this is part of the movement in our practice Allow the feeling, be with the feeling. This is a part of welcoming all parts of us. So we're not saying bad feeling, wrong feeling, but, but allow it and see if it can be felt internally and not expressed externally. I sometimes um, explore this practice of, well, if I'm experiencing something, any of the hindrances, in fact, you know, if I'm experiencing impatience or, or frustration, um, I see, can I fully feel that feeling and not let it kind of leak out into how I am in the world? This is a great practice. And so I'd encourage that around uh, if you find sexual energy coming up. And seeing if you can, there's energy there, energy connected with sexuality that can be kind of harnessed to meeting our experience. And so this refraining from ha- creating harm through sexuality cultivates integrity. One thing I will mention here, um, there are a number of you who have sat quite a few retreats and some of you who are a little newer to retreats. And, and so I'll just mention that um, there's kind of a, um, culture almost, or a, almost a, just something that we do on retreat. It's not required, but, um, that we tend to, in this exploration of being inward, to not make eye contact with other people. This is not, you don't have to like completely avoid eye contact. We don't have to go that far. And yet you may find, especially if you're new on retreat, um, it feels odd that people aren't looking back at you. You know that that this is a this is a kind of a cultural norm in some ways. People often will just be, you know, if you're sitting across from somebody at the meal, you know, they're just looking down at their plate. They're not making eye contact with you. This doesn't mean that they don't like. This not doesn't mean that they that they um, don't like you. It, it it doesn't have anything to do with with that. But I did find my very first retreat that it was a little bit uncomfortable. And I saw actually how much I relied on somebody looking at me to feel okay about myself. 
And so just know that that might be happening for you if you're new on retreat. That you may notice that people aren't looking at you. And that's just just part of how they are choosing to engage in their practice, in being a little more inward or internal. And it can be a very useful practice, actually. Because the eye contact is in some ways a form of communication. And we, um, we are exploring not communicating with each other right now. To, to be together on retreat in a different way. And yet we'll find just how, um, how much community can develop when all we see are the other people's shoes on feet. <laughs> or their backs, or you know, just kind of get a sense of them as they walk across the room. Refraining from false speech, this again is the, the uh, non-harming piece of it, to refrain from false speech. Here we also um, go, go to the point of taking what we call noble silence, where we are essentially not speaking, except for, well, we could say functional speech in the yogi jobs, for instance, in the kitchen. Um, if you're chopping vegetables, you don't have to resort to elaborate hand gestures to ask how to chop a carrot. You can just ask, how do I chop this carrot? That's functional speech. And so functional speech is, is fine in the, in the yogi jobs. And we will also be having meetings with you. And we will um, have conversation about your practice. And yet the rest of the time will be in silence. And so this is a big piece this being in silence is a big piece of the practice. Actually, if all we did here was took walks and sat and looked out at the orchard and the vineyard and, and, and just were in silence for three or four days, this would be transformative. Just this being silent would have a very powerful impact. And we have an opportunity to, to go even further <coughs> through this curiosity and investigation of how are we here allowing all parts of ourselves. And so this, this too is paired with the cultivation, the refraining from false speech is paired with the cultivation of truthfulness. And then refraining from intoxicants. This is actually a slightly different um, precept in some ways, in that uh, the understanding is that um, you know, the, 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 the harm that intoxicants create is a little bit indirect. The understanding is that if we get intoxicated, we tend to lose touch with our... Um, our capacity to be present and to refrain from unskillful actions. And so the encouragement is to refrain from intoxicants which cloud the mind and lead to heedlessness. It also creates conditions. I actually found for myself pretty early in my practice, I was playing with this precept of refraining from intoxicants, just refraining from a glass of wine. I wasn't drinking to the point of intoxication, but I was just having a glass of wine with dinner. And I began to get very interested in recognizing how when I did have a glass of wine with dinner, it really impacted my ability to meditate that night. It created a cloudy mind that wasn't so capable of really being present. And it actually had this an impact that lasted through to the next morning. I was surprised to see. And as I began to value clarity of mind, I began to recognize that's not something that I want to do, even if it's not to the point of intoxication. It's just I value the clarity of mind. Here we refrain from recreational drugs and alcohol for this duration of the time. 
and um, it, this doesn't include any um, medications that you take for your health. So if you have medications that you take for your health, please continue to take those, and we'll work with you if they have um, some impact on your mind. We'll work with that. And the um, what this precept does is really it cultivates clarity of mind as we engage with refraining from intoxicants that create, um, cloud the mind, we are cultivating clarity of mind. And so we, uh, actually I want to um, just offer Pawan a few moments to say something about um, any thoughts you have about how these precepts function for you on retreat. So for me, um, it's more the precept is more of an exploration of how it is inside of me on a retreat. Um, I've noticed that when I have thoughts, you know, those circuitous thoughts and conversations with people who are not on retreat somewhere, they're outside the retreat. And I'm engaged in those conversations. I have come to see that... Um, it, it causes, sometimes those conversations are, I'm causing harm to the other person. Um, and I'm causing harm to my own self. So that's become an exploration for me on a retreat in terms of the precept of, um, you know, how I'm causing harm to myself. Judging mine um, definitely um, causes a lot of harm to me. So that's how I look at the precept of causing harm. With, with the false speech. Thank you. Thank you. So our um, ritual around this is to chant the refuges and precepts together, and. Um, the, the refuges will chant in the language of Pali. We'll chant them together in the language of Pali. And the first part of the, um, the chant of the refuges is kind of an homage. It's, a, it's just an acknowledgement of appreciation and gratitude for the Buddha who offered us these practices and these um, teachings, that we appreciate that he, he existed and that he, he awakened. So it's kind of a, just an expression of appreciation for the Buddha. And then we take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And the words are Buddhang, which means Buddha, Saranang, which basically means I go towards or I walk towards. It's the meaning is walk. I go towards the Buddha. And then... Uh, I'm sorry, saranang is, is refuge, and gachami means to walk. And so, buddhang saranang gachami, the Buddha refuge I walk towards. And then damang saranang gachami, sangang saranang gachami. And then we'll take it for the second time, dutiyampi, buddhang saranang gachami, and the, the dharma and the sangha, and then for the third time, tatiyampi. We'll do this, I'll do this in call and response. We'll do a few words at a time. Namo tasa. Namo tasa. Bhagavato. Bhagavato. Arahato. Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa 
Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Buddhang Saranang Gachami Tamang Saranang Gachami Sangang Saranang Gachami Dutiampi Now we'll do a line together. Budang Saranang Gachami Dutiampi Damang Saranang Chami Dutiampi Sangang Saranang Chami Tatiampi Budang Saranang Chami Tatiampi Damang Saranang Chami Tatiampi Sangang Saranang Chami And we'll take the uh, precepts together in English. And we'll do this half a line at a time. I undertake the training to refrain from killing living beings. I undertake the training to refrain from taking that which is not given. I undertake the training to refrain from intentional sexual activity. I undertake the training to refrain from false speech. I undertake the training to refrain from intoxicants which cloud the mind and lead to heedlessness. May this ethical conduct lead to the highest peace. So thank you for entering into this container together, this container of taking refuge together in the safety of flying back and in the container of non-harming. So let's sit together. We'll just sit together for a short time and we'll have an early, an early night tonight.